going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. And he's intercepted! Welcome to the Duck Pod. I'm Ryan Thorburn, joined by Austin Meek, and we're getting ready for Oregon's road trip to number 12, Washington. So our guest this week is Adam Jude from the Seattle Times. Adam, thanks again for joining us. Absolutely. How are you guys doing? We're doing well. So what's kind of the mindset up in Seattle now that they've ended their 12-year uh, losing skid to Oregon last year and convincing fashion. Um, Oregon is kind of rebuilding and and Washington's sights are set again on, you know, winning the Pac-12 and possibly sneaking into the college football playoff. Is this still a game that, you know, is, is considered a bitter rivalry or is it something where uh, it's just w- one in, in 12? Was that was that streak like a big deal? Was that people <laughs> talking about that? that uh, oh, oh, that streak, that thing. Um, yeah, so uh, today, Tuesday morning, was our first chance to, to talk to some players. Uh, Chris Peterson has his weekly press conference on Monday, and, and he was rather subdued, which, um, you know, wasn't totally surprising, even after coming off a big victory over, uh, you know, UCLA on Saturday. Uh, when it comes to Rivalry Week, Chris Peterson, um, you know, is kind of as tame as it gets. You know, that's I feel like in a lot of ways that's where, where things have gone in college football. Obviously, coaches in this in this era of social media and Twitter and, um, you know, sort of heightened coverage, you know, I think everyone's pretty careful about what they say and, you know, you don't want to inflame anything. And I, I totally get that. Uh, I remember being down in Eugene during the days of uh, – um, you know Keith Lewis when he was the the smack talk in safety and and uh, just I, I think it was in 2002 he went on Seattle radio and and called out Cody Pickett uh, Washington's record-setting quarterback at the time and that became such a big thing and Mike Bellotti had to ban Keith uh, Keith Lewis from interviews for a long time so there's a part of me that definitely misses those days where the two teams they just love to hate each other went back and forth and, and the players really got involved in it too and, and now it's obviously more of a a fan-driven thing where uh, both sides have, um, you know, been invested in this for so long. And, uh, you know, it was a one-sided rivalry forever with, with Washington on top during the Don James era in the 80s and 90s. And then, obviously, uh, you know, with Bilotti and, and Chip Kelly, it, it went the other way, 12 in a row for for Oregon. And, and here we are in the Chris Peterson era and just starting with Willie Taggart and all that stuff. It, it does feel like it's, it's uh, trended more toward a friendly rivalry between the coaches and the teams and, and now this new era and all that. So, you know, it's been pretty tame up here. Like I said, we just talked to the players for the first time here on Tuesday morning and, and they said all the right things. And, you know, one of the guys even, uh, you know, talked about this being just another game and just another opponent. And and you sort of roll your eyes a little bit because, um, you know, they, you know, they're only saying that because uh, it's the right thing to say and they don't want to get anyone too excited and all that good stuff. But uh, I know for me, and obviously having covered Oregon for as long as I did, now back home up in Seattle is my fifth season, fifth season covering the Huskies, and um, you know, getting a taste for both sides of it again. It's it's a lot of fun, um, you know, to cover, and and I know what obviously what it means to to both fan bases and all that too. So uh, I think it should be a pretty good game Saturday. Uh, it's strength versus strength when you think about 
you know, Oregon's offense and that rushing attack versus Washington's defense. So uh, I think it should be a pretty good showdown. We were having fun earlier today passing around a, a PDF of the register guard cover from 1916 when Oregon and Washington uh, dueled to a 0-0 tie. Uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen uh, on Saturday. We have overtime <laughs> now, so I, I guess it can't. But uh, you know, not too long ago, Justin Herbert went down and uh, Washington's offense was struggling. It, it didn't seem too far off. But let's we can talk about the offense in a minute, but let's talk about Washington's defense. Um, your, your colleague, Matt Calkins, wrote a column uh, making the case that Washington might be the best defense in, in the country, right up there with Alabama. How good is, is this Husky defense? Is it as good as last year, and, and what really makes it go? Yeah, it's a great question, and, and I remember uh, Matt Calkins and I kind of going back and forth, uh, you know, over the weekend during that UCLA game, um, you know, sort of making the case and sort of looking at some of the numbers with with Alabama. And then I did actually a deeper dive today, sort of looking at it, the numbers a little bit, and even comparing – you know, this UW defense to the Huskies' 1991 defense uh, that shared a national championship. And I think a lot of people look at that 91 defense as, as probably the best in, in Pac-12 history, uh, Pac-10, Pac-12 history, and they were that good. Uh, had number one NFL draft pick in Steve Etman and, uh, you know, really just terrorized people for, for a couple of years there. And it sort of, uh, in some ways, feel feels like, a, you know, a similar thing here. It's a different era where, you know, offense kind of rules the day, particularly out here in the in the Pac-12. And so, for the Huskies to be able to doing what they're doing, um, the defense alone is allowing 9.6 points per game this season. Uh, eight touchdowns in eight games they've given up. Um, they lead the nation in you know uh, yards per play allowed, 3.66. That's the best uh, since 2011 in all of college football. Um, they're only allowing 2.18 yards per rushing attempt. I could go on and on and bore you with the stats, but, um, you know, through eight games here, uh, I wouldn't say it's unprecedented, but out here in the Pac-12, you know, we haven't seen defenses put up these kind of numbers in a long time. Uh, sort of the, the other side of that is, uh, you know, the Huskies have the, the meat of their schedule still coming up here, so they haven't faced, you know, many of the top offenses in the Pac-12. They obviously had a soft non-conference schedule, so can they keep it up? It's a big question mark, but... Um, they do have experience. Uh, they do have the talent. You know, most of these guys were on the team last year and they got to the college football playoff. So they know what it takes. And, you know, this passing, uh, passing, excuse me, the, the secondary hadn't given up a passing touchdown until this last Saturday uh, against Josh Rosen. Uh, they, they had a couple of them. They hadn't given up a passing touchdown in, in Pac-12 play yet. So, um, yeah, they're all over the field. And that was the one question mark coming into the season about this UW defense. Well, it's the secondary. They lost, you know, three guys who are second-round NFL draft picks, and they've picked up right where they left off. They, You know, you could almost make a case that they've been even better in the defensive secondary, which is certainly saying something. That said, they are without their top two cornerbacks right now. Uh, Jordan Miller uh, is out with a broken ankle for the rest of the season, and then they've got uh, a retro freshman in Byron Murphy, he might be the best athlete on the team. Um, he's been out the past six weeks, and it is definitely a big question mark for this week as well. So uh, it's been a really good defense so far. Can they keep it going uh, over this uh, next grueling stretch over, over the next month? Uh, we'll see, but uh, so far, certainly so good. Given everything you just said about the defense, and obviously Browning's back, Gaskin, really good offense. Chris Peterson, I have a simple question. What happened in Tempe? <laughs> Yeah, it seems like every every year, really, um, for the past you know 
16 years, I want to say, whenever Washington goes down to Arizona, something something weird, something strange happens and, and happen again here. Huskies haven't won in Tempe since 2001. Um, they finally won their first game in the state of Arizona last year, uh, you know, in, in Tucson, but they needed overtime to do it against a pretty bad Arizona team last year. Um, I think they had lost something like 10 or 11 games in a row in the state um, before that. It's just something weird always happens. And then for whatever reason, too, Arizona State in the past three seasons had, had Jake Browning's number. Um, he, I, he has his worst numbers against any Pac-12 team against Arizona State. Whatever they do defensively, their ultra-aggressiveness um, uh, really gets to Browning and, and uh, Jonathan Smith, their offensive coordinator. They haven't been able to figure that out. Uh, they couldn't get a running game going, and then um, you know when, when Jake Browning did have time to, to pass it, uh, Arizona State got really physical and aggressive with the Huskies' receivers, and those guys weren't weren't getting a separation. They weren't getting open. So yeah, it was a disaster down there for the Huskies in the desert. Um, had a pretty nice rebound against UCLA this this uh, last weekend. Uh, that said, UCLA is uh, one of the worst rushing defenses in the history of the Pac-12. So. Yeah, you're impressed that the Huskies put up 333 yards on the ground, uh, but at the same time, it, you know, needs a bit of a, a asterisk because it was did come against UCLA. Um, Jake Browning only attempted 11 passes on Saturday against UCLA. Again, they didn't need him to throw it, so kind of uh, the, the, one of the big storylines, big question marks, subplots this week is what's wrong with the Huskies' passing game. I kind of shrugged my shoulders a little bit at that because, again, uh, Browning only attempted 11 passes. He completed eight of them. Uh, he had one or two bad decisions there, yes, but that's that's pretty par for the course of you know any quarterback at this level. But um, there, it, you know, I think it is fair to question, fair to wonder about this passing game um, now that uh, true freshman tight end Hunter Bryant is out for the year. He was, um, you know, arguably their most dynamic um, pass catching option, certainly at the tight end position, but. Uh, with Dante Pettis there as their number one receiver. Uh, Hunter Bryant was their number two receiver. He might be out for the year now with a leg injury. Uh, still waiting for a word on that. But beyond Dante Pettis, um, there are some question marks about this receiving core, and they're going to need some other guys to step up and, and step up in a hurry here. We've got another night game on Saturday, 7 o'clock kickoff, which Boo. is great for those of us <laughs> with newspaper deadlines. Um, maybe yeah. you can help me understand what, to me, is one of the weirder uh subplots in the Pac-12 this year. So Chris Peterson made what looked to me to be some kind of innocuous comments that you know everybody would agree with about how night games are kind of a pain for the for the fans and the exposure in other parts of the country. And um, ESPN really took offense to that. Kirk Herbstreet fired back. The the guy was putting the cupcakes on the sideline at the game. Um, was there more to that story? I mean, when I, when I read those comments in print, and maybe it sounded different in person, but I didn't even think that Chris Peterson was really talking directly about ESPN as much as he was talking about the conference and its willingness to sign on to this TV deal. So how, how did this uh, this little uh, back and forth with Chris Peterson and ESPN come about? Yeah, I think you've got it right there, Austin. I, I never interpreted all of that from Peterson at the beginning of it as sort of any sort of shot at, at ESPN, even sort of veiled shots. Uh, you know, he kind of started all that out, you know, apologizing to UW fans for all the late kickoffs. And, and you know, the first, um, what was it, seven games uh, were all night games for the Huskies, all 5 o'clock or, or later. Um, 
couple eight o'clock kickoffs in there. And again, I think we all expect that in the Pac-12. That's just kind of become the norm the last five, six years with this, you know, $3 billion TV deal. Uh, that's what Pac-12 athletic directors and, and uh, uh, you know, presidents signed on for. They wanted to maximize the revenue with this deal. And Larry Scott, in that regard, did his job, and he did it pretty darn well. Um, that said, you know, obviously the coaches and administrators now – you know, wish there was some sort of, um, you know, um, equal sharing of, of these late kickoffs to, because it is such a burden, particularly when you're going on the road. We all know that. And, uh, these guys aren't getting back till four or five, six o'clock in the morning. And it, and it sort of ruins their Sunday too when they try to sleep a little bit. So, um, you know, I get it. I think we all understand the burden and, and I get it from, um, you know, Oregon's fans' perspective too. So many of them coming from Portland. You've got an eight o'clock kickoff. You're not getting home till two or three o'clock in the morning. And, and and again, we we all understand the burden. And I think Peterson's main point there was just to to show some empathy for the fans uh, and appreciation for the fans who were still coming out with the late kickoffs, knowing that um, you know it, it it was it was painful. And that's that was his comment. Uh, was that we we know it's painful. It's painful for everyone involved, and we appreciate our fans. And he did have um, you know kind of a throwaway line at, at part of the end of his long comments about that, saying. You know, we all know. You know, nobody on the East Coast is watching. Nobody on the East Coast coast is watching us that late anyway. And I think that's where ESPN interpreted that as as a shot at them. Uh, again, I don't think it was, but you know, that's how they interpreted it. And you know, so they went on the defensive and and then the offensive. You know, showing the ratings numbers and and how people on the East Coast, um, you know, are watching. Uh, maybe the, at least the first half of, of Pac-12 games and that they are getting good numbers for those games and all that, which, again, to me, wasn't really the point of Peterson's comments anyway. And and then, again, it just kind of snowballed from there, and it, it just got weird during the, during the broadcast. Um, part of that, too, and, and I wrote about it at the time, you know, Peterson with his media policies, um, you know, he doesn't do the standard – uh, production meetings the day before uh, a game, the day before a broadcast. It, it's pretty standard around the industry, both in the NFL and college football, uh, as you guys know, where you know the crew flies in on Friday, the broadcasting crew, let's say from ESPN, they'll fly in to Seattle on Friday before Saturday's broadcast, and they sit down that afternoon with the head coach, with the with the coordinators, maybe with one of the top players or two. It's pretty standard to get some time one on one with them, so they can kind of be prepared and do their job for, for Saturday during a, you know, three hour, three and a half hour broadcast. You, you've got to talk about a lot and you want to know what you're talking about. Um, Peterson doesn't do those in person on Friday. His, um, he, he's consistent at least uh, with what he does with that. And he'll do it over the phone during the week and talk to those guys. Well, uh, the guys doing the ESPN broadcast, uh, that particular game, obviously were a little offended that Peterson didn't give them the time of day in person and they kind of said something in passing during the end of the broadcast saying, um, uh, what, what was the exact word they used? Uh, the cantankerous coach, Chris Peterson. Mm-hmm. The whole time I was, I went back and watched that. Um, you know, I, I was just trying to imagine them doing something like that to Alabama or, you know, uh, Florida state or something like that. They never would, they would never put cupcakes on the field at Alabama. They would never say that about Nick Saban. And so, uh, you know, I think, um, I know, uh, Washington's fans and athletic director administrators were, were pretty upset about that, were offended, and they eventually did get a, an apology from um, an ESPN uh, senior director and all that. And You know, I think they've all moved on from it. But I think you're right, Austin. It was one of the more, you know, strange, uh, you know, interesting subplots this whole season. And, and to me, it's not nothing. 
um, I, I think you know we'll we'll see here what it means in the first college football playoff rankings tonight. But um, I, I think there are larger repercussions for this, not only for Washington but for the Pac-12 at large, because you know I think ESPN showed its hand, um, you know, when it came to that stuff. That you know they they don't necessarily respect Washington the same way they do those other top programs, and the fact that USC has lost a couple times, the fact that Notre Dame is in the mix now. I think the Huskies and the Pac-12. Uh, as a whole, are going to have a really hard time making up a lot of ground this year in terms of the college football playoff and gaining that national respect. A lot of football here still to play, of course, but to me, the Huskies are, are absolutely a long shot to get back to the college football playoff. And I think part of it is ESPN has shown its hand at how they truly feel about Washington and and, um, and where that, that program is at at this point. Adam, I'm curious a little bit about um... – Obviously, last year, 70 to 21, that feels pretty good for the fans and everything. I'm curious how Chris Peterson feels, not just about that score, but the fact that his friend Mark Helfrich was fired by Oregon, and you know that was one of the more damning results from a long season. Um, does he still have a, a close relationship with Mark? And obviously, he's hired uh, uh, Matt Lubick from Helfrich's staff. And just what do you think he thinks of Oregon now that they've gotten rid of his friend and hired Willie Taggart. Yeah, I, Peterson, even before last year's game, the whole week leading up to it, um, if you guys remember, was pretty outspoken. Um, you know, in support of Helfrich, um, he, he just thought it was kind of silly at the time that there was even talk of, of Helfrich being on the hot seats. And, you know, he understands, too, like, hey, this day and age, you, you know, what have you done for me lately? But I remember a couple different times saying, you know, it had been less than two years since you know, they'd been in the national championship game and he didn't understand the criticism and, and why it was coming to a head at that point. And, and, um, you know, I'm writing about more about this later in the week, but I'll, I'll never forget Chris Peterson's reaction after that game, 70 to 21, frankly, one of the most, um, satisfying wins in, in the history of the university of Washington program. Again, you put it in context with that streak and, and just, uh, how heated, how, how hated that this rivalry is. Um, you know, to do what they did in Austin Stadium. No one's ever scored 70 points in that stadium. You think an offensive guy like Chris Peterson would kind of relish in that and, and uh, be happy that he doesn't have to answer any more questions about the losing streak. And yet here he was, to me, he looked like a coach who uh, had just lost. Um, you know, he actually apologized in his post-game comments right away. Uh, he said his intention certainly wasn't to, to pour it on there. He didn't want to put up 70 points. Um, obviously, Oregon... Could have done that to him, uh, you know, a couple years before that, particularly when uh, Marcus Mariota uh, in, what, 2014 came up to Husky Stadium here in Chris Peterson's first game. Uh, I believe it was. Now, that would have been down in Eugene. Anyway, Peterson said, obviously, Oregon could have done that to them a number of times, and, and he certainly wasn't trying to run it up and disrespect Oregon at the time. So, again, just to me, that Chris Peterson's look, his body language, his tone after that game uh, was very surprising, very revealing for me. Um, obviously, you know, as we know, uh, Peterson and Helfrich are, are very close and have been close for a long time. Um, haven't asked him this week, to, you know, about Helfrich or anything, um, uh, you know, since then. But um, I think he took that that to heart. He, I think, he knew the writing was on the wall at that point, and he certainly didn't want to want to do that to one of his close friends. And, and I think that's why he, he reacted the way he did after the game. Adam, last question for me. You mentioned earlier Jonathan Smith, the offensive coordinator at Washington. Oregon State guy, played quarterback at Oregon State. 
Beavers are looking for a for a new coach now, or will be, and he's been mentioned maybe as a candidate for that. Um, what do you think about that? Is he ready for a head coaching job? Do you see him making that uh, making that leap soon? And how do you think he'd fit at, at Oregon State? Yeah, I think Oregon State would be crazy uh, not to talk to him at least. And um, you know, my thought is, and everything I'm hearing is, he's on their short list right now. But um, you know, and and obviously we talked to Jonathan. Smith about it too and you know he said all the right things and that you know he's got to focus on this team and uh this was actually before the Arizona State game when all that uh, was was happening and uh he knew what what kind of challenge the Huskies had in front of him that week so um you know he didn't want to be distracted by any of that talk but um obviously again he he led uh, uh the Beavers during their their best era ever a victory over Notre Dame in the Fiesta Bowl I'll, I'll I won't forget that game or that that era uh you know Chad Ochocinco before he became Chad Ochocinco, and and uh, Jonathan Smith, those great defenses with Dennis Erickson and all that. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'm sure Jonathan Smith still has has a soft spot for Corvallis. Um, obviously, if you're a coordinator, you you kind of want those looks and you want your name to be floated out for those. That said, I, 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 again, I think he's kind of said all the right things. He he knows he's got uh, a good team here, a good offense. I think he's a perfect fit. Uh, him and with Jake Browning, um, they're very close, and and obviously Browning still has another year. So I, I don't know if Jonathan Smith wants to leave this situation necessarily right away. Here, he did get a new year, a new two year contract extension earlier this year. Um, I think he's making almost seven hundred thousand or over seven hundred thousand a year, which is pretty pretty darn good for an offensive coordinator here. And so I, I think he he can be a bit choosy, a bit picky if if he wants. At the same time, if he feels that tug sort of back home, if you will, to Oregon State. I think it's a natural fit. And, and like I said, I'd, I'd be surprised if he wasn't on their short list right now. Well, listen, Adam, we really appreciate your time and the insight on the Huskies and looking forward to seeing you this weekend in Seattle. Appreciate it. Safe travels, guys. We'll see you Saturday.